Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Good morning. It's great to be back with you all this morning. Good to be back in the pulpit. I'm always thrilled to have the opportunity to to bring the word of the Lord, to testify a little bit about what the Lord has been doing uh, in my life. But in addition to being back in the pulpit, it's just good to be back in Tennessee. Uh, Some of you know that uh, a few weeks back I uh, was in Israel and what I began to term while I was there, my, my farewell tour. Uh, thank you for those of you who stood with me uh, in prayer uh, during that time. As uh, you may recall, I was there to handle a number of things. had a few purposes I needed to accomplish, among them being just the logistical uh, matters. I had to pack up a house and get ready to ship all of our belongings back. What we weren't shipping, we needed to get ready to sell. You see some pictures up there. That is our home on the left with all those boxes and mattresses and our whole lives getting ready to to make their way back across the ocean. They're probably somewhere floating on the big blue right now heading our way. Uh, In addition, though, to the logistical items that needed closure, I needed to bring closure to some relationships. You'll see a picture on the next slide there with my uh, my lead pastor and his uh, wife. They're now the current occupants of, of that very home, but we got to spend some time together and it was great to do so. Lastly, I really needed this time in Israel really to meet with the Lord. I needed time to process, time to grieve, and really to lay to rest a a dream and a vision that Julia and I had worked towards for a number of years. And part of that process really involved me retracing my footsteps, allowing the Lord to minister to me in those places and among those people that had become so dear to me. You see a picture of our village there, the synagogue on the left. You can see that, uh, see that candlestick there, the seven branch candlestick. That's indicative that that is a synagogue and nestled behind those trees is that home that you saw the front of moments ago. Uh, you can go to the next slide. Uh, also, uh, was, uh, Oftentimes at that playground right there, which usually would be filled with people, but in the 115 degree heat indexes in the Middle East, not many people were there that day, but I was trying to capture as many images as I could for my wife and the kids. It was difficult, especially for Julia, not to be able to uh, be there with me to to process in this way, physically present uh, in this place where we had been. You can move to the next slide. Uh, There you'll see on the left what's called Migrash Dan. Translated, that means the court of Dan. So amazing to consider that in just, you know, less than three years in that location, and we had a basketball court named after me, and I, you know, I always dreamed of being a baller, but, uh, you know, I don't know, I must have left quite the impression. No, in all seriousness, we lived in the biblical region of Dan, uh, so lots of things carry my name there. It was cool to live there, uh, where the you know, tribe once settled as well. And then on the right, that is a picture of what's called a pump track. It's a, in other words, a skate park actually. And there is where my little two-year-old Micaiah used to be a little daredevil out on his little strider bike. I kid you not, he would capture the attention of grown Israeli men who were skilled on their skateboards. And they would often just stop, stand to the side and watch my two-year-old just own that skate park. So it was great to relive some of those uh, memories It was a bittersweet time. Uh, The Lord did answer prayer, though. Uh, Those logistical boxes were checked, and I got to see the people I needed to see. But I can tell you, there were a lot of tears shed. Uh, They were tears mixed with both uh, sorrow and joy. It was a joy, for instance, to just reconnect with some of those uh, brothers and sisters in the family of faith to hear what God continues to do in and through them. 
The discipleship group that about three years ago, a friend and I had launched, continues to grow. The men continue to mature and lead out in different ways. And I'm thrilled uh, to see that. And also there's a new work in the Golan Heights, a, a place where it's, that's had very little viable witness uh, to speak of. And I got to go and be a part of a few dozen believers gathering together to worship the Lord and to study his word and then to launch out from there on mission where they live, work, and play. And I was thrilled to see that as well. But while, while I rejoice to see those things and to hear those updates, it was also very sorrowful to me, for me to realize that I had not been there with them and I won't be there with them uh, to experience what God continues to do. And moreover, to remember why that's even the case, that we had a cancer diagnosis uh, that none of us could have ever uh, foreseen sideline us from uh, our uh, ministry sort of in the trenches out there. But this farewell trip, as much as this past year and a half has been for me, it's been a time in which I can really identify with the Apostle Paul when he says to the Corinthian church that, you know, my life as an apostle, it's really one that is often sorrowful and yet always rejoicing in 2 Corinthians 6. So this season of my life that I'm in, it is exciting on the one hand. I'm, I'm eager to see what God's going to do, what he has, because I know he's a good God and he has good things for my family. But it's also a time where I often find myself feeling confused and vulnerable. I feel insecure and I even feel intimidated as I face an uncertain future. I don't know if any of you have felt that way before, confused, afraid, frustrated, timid, but if so, I can assure you that we're in good company. And I think our text in John 15, beginning in verse nine, is going to uh, show that to us. We'll, we'll turn now to the word of God. I'd ask you to stand up as we uh, do read God's word aloud. I'm gonna begin in John 15 in verse nine. And what I'd like us to see is that Jesus issues us a time of invitation Rather, in a time of intimidation, he offers us an invitation. Beginning in verse nine, may God bless the reading of his word. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you are seated, I just encourage you to have your Bibles or your Bible apps accessible so that you can follow with me as we navigate through this, uh, through this text today. As we look at these verses in John 15, it is crucial that we recall where we are in John's gospel narrative. You'll uh, remember that we're, this falls in the context of the Last Supper or shortly thereafter. These are Jesus's last hours with his friends before he'll go to the cross. And what we're reading is known as the farewell discourse. And it's more or less a monologue that begins close to the end of chapter 13 after the time uh, at which Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, including shockingly, if you think about it, Judas's feet, his betrayers. 
And he had then predicted Judas's betrayal. Uh, he had, uh, at, at that point, dis- well, Judas dismissed himself, I guess. He left from their company. And then Jesus begins in this discourse. And that discourse continues all the way through chapter 16 before in 17 it pivots to what is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus on behalf of his disciples, including us. So Jesus's betrayal, his arrest, his torture, his crucifixion are all imminent at this time. And these are his final and crucial instructions to his band of brothers. And I'd like to try to this morning to capture the emotions that must have been so heightened on that fateful evening. I can imagine the embarrassment that these guys must have felt as this one that they've come to believe and confess as Messiah and Lord and Son of God is is taking on the form of a servant. He's lowered himself and performing this most menial task of washing their grimy feet. You'll remember that they had not long before this incident been posturing themselves, pursuing greatness for themselves, desiring that they could sit at his right and his left when he ascended to his throne that they presumed he was heading directly for. But here he is washing their feet. They're embarrassed. I would imagine that they are confused and maybe disoriented because at that same dinner, he'd been calling some of them out. He'd been saying, listen, some of you are going to betray me. At least one of you is. Others of you are going to deny me. And guess what? Every single one of you is going to desert me, he says. In addition to that, Jesus has he, kept, he keeps talking about this hour of darkness and how it's going to be a time of grief and of great sorrow. It's an hour of darkness that's going to engulf himself as well as his, his, his men. He's been explaining about this departure that is soon to take place. And the, the guys are asking, Lord, where are you going? Like, we want to go with you. How do we get there? And they just don't understand everything he's saying is to them at that time so cryptic. And in fact, we know from the text that they will not understand until after he has been resurrected, ascended, and sent his spirit to provide that clarity that they did not have at that moment. So again, emotions, I believe, are high charged at this point. And it's in that context that we have these words beginning in 15.9. And I want us to see from the first three verses of our text that Jesus invites his followers to experience his fullness. Jesus invites his followers to experience his fullness. Actually, you know what? Before I get into verse 9, let's jump. I I want to point y'all's attention to verse 18 and onward. Because there he's going to tell these guys how much hate that they are going to experience from the world around them. He's going to tell them about how they're going to be persecuted. In fact, many of them are going to lose their lives as a result of their allegiance to King Jesus. They're going to be expelled from their religious communities. They're going to face some intimidating circumstances. So Jesus, he wants to fortify these men for these inevitable adversities. And he says something so incredibly profound that I believe an entire sermon, if not an entire sermon series, could be devoted just to the first sentence in our text today where he tells them, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I'd say let's pause just to let that sink in, but we don't have time to let it sink in. It's gonna take a lifetime and an eternity to let that sink in. Uh, This is incomprehensible. It really is. Our minds can't contain this truth that's so vast that somehow that the love that has eternally existed in the Godhead, in our triune God, and in particular that, that perfect and divine love that has existed between God the Father and God the Son, that we are objects of that love. One of 
the preeminent scholars on the Gospel of John is a guy named Don Carson, and he writes that to grasp these divine relationships in the drama of redemption is to humble our pride and heighten our sense of speechless privilege, to be saved and renewed, to be recipients of new life, to be forgiven, all because, listen up, all because we are caught up in the perfection of love among the persons of the Godhead is unutterably solemn, ecstatically wonderful. I'm gonna go home, most likely tonight, I'll sing to Josiah, Jesus loves me, this I know. I'm sure many of you do the same, have done so for those of you who no longer have littles. But do we really know? You see, it requires a work of the Holy Spirit to grasp this incomprehensible love of our Messiah. But if we're gonna face life in this fallen world with all those inevitable hardships and heartaches, then we need to comprehend this truth of God's love for us. That's why when Paul prays for the Ephesians uh, in chapter three of his letter uh, up to the Ephesians, he prays that God may grant them, may grant you, he says, to be strengthened with his power, with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying that we would know something that's unknowable, but it requires a supernatural work of the spirit for us to do so. And I'm praying that he'll accomplish that in us. I do find it striking how Paul's prayer here echoes so much of what Jesus is teaching his disciples and his desires for them that we see in John 15. For instance, in John 15, 9 that we just read, Jesus wants his gods to know how much he loves them. And Paul prays that the Ephesians would have strength to comprehend this love of Christ. In 15, the latter part of 59, Jesus is praying that they would abide in that love or to remain in that love and, and to let their uh, experience of the love of Christ inspire their obedience to him and all that he has commanded in 1510. And Paul, likewise, he prays for the Ephesians, they'd be rooted and grounded. In other words, that they would remain in, they would remain immovably in God's love. And then from that prayer in Ephesians, it flows right into the ethical exhortations that begin in chapter four of Ephesians. In other words, the call to obedience inspired by an experience of the love of God, lived in communion with God. And then we find lastly in 1511, we find that Jesus's purpose, as John records it, is that his followers would experience the fullness of joy that results from an apprehension of his amazing love. And then Paul desires for the Ephesians believers, for the Ephesians, I should say, as they come to comprehend Christ's love, not to only be filled with joy, but with all the fullness of God. And these are not isolated passages of scripture, my friends. We could reference many Psalms. We could reference many other writings of Paul that speak to God's desire that we experience the fullness of his joy and of his life and, and of himself. In John 10, 10, in the NIV, Jesus says there that though there's an enemy who wants to steal from us and kill us and destroy us, that he has come that we may have life and life to the what? To the full. And even in this farewell discourse, we don't have to leave, leave this conversation to find, for instance, in 16, 24, Jesus saying, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And in 17, 13, he prays to the Father that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
And he concludes that prayer at the end of chapter 17 by asking that the love with which you, that is the Father, have loved me, there it is again, may be in them and I in them. There's nothing that can fill us more, to fill the the void that is in our heart. We try to fill ourselves with all kinds of things, but Jesus is praying here, God, I want nothing less than the love with which you have loved me to fill them. I believe it's clear from these texts that God desires that we experience the fullness of the joy and the love and the life that are in him alone. And that even in our darkest hour, when we are most depleted and most defeated, when we are discouraged and when life is intimidating, that we can do that. You know, I've pondered as I considered this text this week, I've, I've pondered the past year and a half. And, and at times I've actually said to myself, wow, a, a life without Julia okay, my wife, who's battling cancer right now, that, is, that would be a joyless existence. And I have no doubt, the grief would be, I can't imagine the grief. But, but it caused me to consider these men. They have given their lives to follow this master. Their lives have been uh, turned upside down for three years, <laughs> that they've walked with him. And now they're about to watch him walk, quite literally, carrying his own uh, execution tool on his back, the means by which he'd be executed. He's gonna walk with that to Calvary and he's gonna suffer and he's gonna die on their behalf. And they're gonna talk about the heightened emotions on that evening. Think of that three days between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And yet he's able to tell them, listen guys, you can have the fullness of joy. You see, often we try to fill our lives with all kinds of other things. That's why Paul tells the Romans, he says in Romans 14, that's not in the slides, but he says in Romans 14 that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Those are things we try to fill ourselves with to medicate and to, uh, and, and to deal with the sorrow and the grief that we experience. But he says that's not, that's not what the kingdom of God is. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God desires that we'd experience his fullness. But next, I want us to see in verses 12 to 15 how Jesus invites his followers to enjoy his friendship. We'll notice that three times in verses uh, 13 to 15, he refers to these disciples as friends. But this friendship that he invites them and he invites each of us into, it comes at a cost. Otherwise, it would not be possible. You see, none of us here today, none of us that have existed for all of time are by nature friends of God. It's actually quite the opposite. By nature, we're enemies of God. The scriptures plainly attest to this in numerous places. Just to quote a couple, James, the half-brother of Jesus and the apostle in his letter says in 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Just pause to ask ourselves, who among us has not befriended the world in in some way or another? In the way that we spend our time and our energy and what we give our attention and our affections to and even what we give our resources to, how many of those things have no value whatsoever for the kingdom of God or for the life to come, the things that are of eternal value? And in Romans 5.10, the apostle reminds the believers that they too once were enemies of God, but through the death of the Son of God, they are reconciled. They're brought into right relationship with him. And it is to that reconciling work of the cross that I believe we're being pointed in John 15.13, the verse that really is the crux of this entire message, where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. 
Jesus is using here the language of substitution. He's saying somebody's got to lay down their life in exchange for others, in exchange for those that would uh, be his friends. And if we're going to understand the love of God, we've got to understand this truth about substitution. Jesus, by his own volition, is about to lay down his life for those who are, by nature, his enemies. It's clear from John's gospel, from the very beginning of it, that Jesus is the spotless lamb, that he is the perfect son of God, that he does only his father's bidding. He lives a perfect life, and yet he's going to die as a substitute in the place of rebels like me and like you. But it's his death as our substitute that is, in fact, the greatest demonstration of God's love. And John himself will reflect on this later in his epistle, his first epistle, where he writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is key here. It basically means The very thing that we often sing in that great modern hymn, In Christ Alone, we're in the second verse. We sing, In Christ Alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness was scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ. I live, but did you guys know that there are some streams of Christianity that have actually modified those lyrics to say instead of the wrath of God was satisfied, they say the love of God was magnified. Now, is the latter true? It absolutely is. I just said it was, and John says it is as well, that, and Paul does too. That is the demonstration of God's love. However, if we only emphasize the love of God at the expense of his holiness and his justice and his wrath, then we're not sharing the whole gospel That's why Jesus, when earlier in John 12, 27, he says, now my soul is troubled. He's in agony. It's because he recognizes what awaits him at the hour of crucifixion, that it's no less than the fullness of God's righteous wrath and indignation against sin poured out on him. That's why in Gethsemane, Luke records that he prays in agony, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But you see, Jesus knows that the removal of that cup is not an option. It's not an option if he's going to reconcile those who are by nature enemies to himself and call them friends. And that's why in surrender, he says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. That's the cost of the friendship that he invites us into, that the innocent and the holy life and the shed blood of the Son of God is what is required to bring us out of a relationship of enmity with him and into one of intimacy. I'm just gonna bring it back full circle to the conversation Jesus is having with these men. I I hope we recognize how needful those words must have been to his disciples' ears. I've called you friends. Again, they're facing horrific, scary times. And in their fear and in their confusion, they're all going to desert him. It's true that they would soon see the resurrected Christ and they would then enjoy an amazing 40 days with him where he's teaching them uh, about the things of the kingdom. But then he's going to ascend. He's going to leave again and they're gonna be hit head on with all these hardships that, that are anticipated in this discourse. So what, what does he say to fortify them? Well, I've uh, allowed myself to, to, to uh, write a little paraphrase of verses 14 and 15. And this is what, My paraphrase uh, sounds like, he says, you're my friend, Jesus does to these men. You're my friend. It may seem that you're abandoned and alone, but I assure you that this is not the case. You're my friend. 
I'm going to show you amazing things. In fact, I've already shown you some amazing things. I've let you into my secret council, as it were. I've revealed to you mysteries of the kingdom, but I have even more to teach you. In fact, you're not only gonna hear some amazing things, you're gonna do some pretty incredible things as well. But I want you to know this, that more important than what you do, it's who you are, that you're not merely a servant of some use to your master. You're a friend of the king of kings. I'm not interested in you merely as an asset to my kingdom. Your productivity, your performance, your position, your prestige, those things aren't nearly as important to me as your person. I'm invested in you and I'm committed to you as as my friend. If you don't believe me now, just wait a few days. And by the way, what you do in obedience to me, and obedience is absolutely expected, don't do it for my acceptance or for my favor. Do it from the acceptance and from the favor that you've already received from me. It's important to note here that Jesus doesn't say that they're not servants. I mean, a little while earlier, he had said, no servant is greater than his master. And that's when he's calling them to follow his example of humble service as he washes their feet. In fact, a number of these guys will self-identify as just that, bond servants and slaves of the Lord Jesus. They'll do so in their writings. It's true of them and it's true of all of us who confess Jesus as Lord. We proclaim not ourselves with Paul. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants of others for Jesus' sake. But I believe what Jesus wants to communicate here to these men, broken and fragile, as they are, as their lives are at that moment in time, and as they're about to step out into the great unknown, they're about to be, they're just be plunged into it. He says, I love you. He says, you're my friend. And as we turn our attention to these final two verses, he says, I've chosen you and I've appointed you to do great things. The last point I want us to see briefly is that in, our times, in times of intimidation, Jesus invites his followers to increase in fruitfulness. So he invites them to experience his fullness to enjoy his friendship, and he invites them to increase in fruitfulness. We've already seen that three times in, in chapter 15, how important a fruit-bearing life is uh, to Jesus. That's what he's after in the lives of these uh, men, no less than abundant fruitfulness. He, he promises that the Father's gonna prune uh, the fruit-bearing branch so that it may bear even more fruit. A little further down in the chapter, he says that as we abide in him and in his word, we will bear much fruit, and the Father will be glorified thereby. And here he's telling his disciples, his friends, listen guys, make no mistake, you didn't choose me, I chose you. In my grace, I chose you. And just as, as we read in Genesis, when God appointed the first humanity, Adam and Eve, to bear fruit and multiply, so now Jesus, the creator and savior himself, he's appointing this new humanity that he's forming, this, these new creatures in Christ. He's appointing them to go and to bear abiding fruit. That is fruit that is going to last well beyond their short lives on earth. And I want to point out that it's not merely the fruitfulness of a changed life that's exemplified as Christ's character is formed in us. That is crucial, absolutely. But here it speaks also to the impact, the kingdom impact that disciples of Jesus are to make on the world around them. You see, the fruitful life is one that is lived in service for others. It means loving one another just as Jesus loved us. What a high calling. Even if it means laying down our lives, which is exactly what many of these men would do. They would lay down their lives in order to see others come to know Christ.
You see, these men could not have known on that fateful evening of this farewell discourse what kind of fruit they would bear in their lives. In many of their cases, they became, as John 12 says, like the fruit, like the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. But what resulted from their deaths was much fruit. They'd been, fa- they'd been prepared by Jesus and fortified by him to face all kinds of trials. They'd embraced their master's invitation, even amid intense times of intimidation, to experience his fullness and enjoy his friendship and to increase in fruitfulness. See, Jesus had rescued and transformed these men, this ragtag band of brothers, and he wants to do the same for many of us, for all of us here today. He wants to rescue and transform us. He desires that our lives be oriented around the gospel. You see, I'm convinced that the more the gospel impacts our character, the more that we'll make a gospel impact in our communities. And just as I'm convinced that we have not begun to scratch the surface of how much God loves us, we cannot fathom how much God desires to use us to display his glory and his love through us in our community and in this world. We talk at Fairview about how our aim is to help our neighbors experience the true freedom that is found in full surrender to Jesus Christ. But how do we help our neighbors understand this, but to be among them, to be serving and to be loving them in word and in deed. This week, I know that in your bulletin, you have a a calendar here of all the upcoming events for our summer of impact. I'd ask you to already be praying about these, considering uh, and asking God to make these fruitful efforts and considering how you might be engaged in them. Next week, I think there's going to be a promo video to that end. God wants to use your lives in tremendous ways. He wants to use this church. He wants to use us as conduits of his love and of his grace and of his glory in Lebanon in Middle Tennessee and to the ends of the earth, friends. We're gonna move into a time of response. John, Pastor John's gonna come and administer the Lord's Supper. And as he does, I'd like for us to just take stock and ask ourselves a couple things. Number one, are we experiencing the fullness that God offers us today? Are we looking for other things to fill our lives? Are we looking for our joy and, our, uh, and, and love? And are we looking for, for life and other things? If so, then maybe today we're guilty of idolatry and we need to repent of that today. I would ask, secondly, are we enjoying God's friendship? Maybe some of you today have not experienced that transfer, being made uh, from an enemy to a friend, having that relationship instead of one of enmity become one of intimacy with the Savior. He invites you to that today. So take Christ. If you, if you hear and are not a believer, the invitation, as John administers the supper, is to take Jesus today, to put your trust in him. I'm gonna pray for us, and then John's gonna administer the supper. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. I pray, God, that you would fill this place now with your presence. I pray, God, that we would go out filled up and ready to pour into the world around us, God. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son that is the greatest demonstration of your love that he did, in fact, drink the cup of your wrath down to the dregs. Lord, he did it for us. Father, we love you. We praise you. Bless this time of response now, I ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.